Hi everyone, this is Barry Dwolatsky, also known as The Graham Geek. Welcome to our new podcast entitled Optimizing. The first season has the theme Conversations on Leading Africa's Digital Future. Hi everyone, I'm Karen Gammy. Today we're going to be starting off with episode one entitled Becoming the Grand Geek, part one. Barry, you're like the OG of tech <laughs> and you're you're very well known and very well regarded. Um, and so I guess I really just want to have some conversations with you about sort of how you got into tech, how you sort of molded it into what it is today within the South African and maybe larger African landscape. Um, what are you hoping to get out of this conversation and the future conversations we have? To me, these conversations really are located within uh, what it is to be African and South African. And I must admit, I've always found and I continue to find Africa a very exciting part of the world. The continent that we live in is currently home for about one and a half, 1.2 billion people or 17% of the world's population. By 2050, just think about this, by 2050, our continent's population will have doubled to about two and a half billion or a quarter of the world's population. About 60% of people in Africa will live in large cities. So we are really facing either a, a high road or a low road for Africa. If we don't get it right, we'll see all sorts of problems as our population grows and urbanizes at this rate. In the same period over the next 30 years, we're going to see amazing things happening in technology. And you standing at the very beginning of that. We're going to see rapid changes in the way we use digital technology in our economic, social, educational and political lives. So what I'm hoping that these conversations will focus on is the very critical issue of Africa's future and how we deal with population growth and development and to explore one of the possible scenarios and that's the uh, scenario that sees Africa and Africans taking the lead in shaping the digital transformation or the fourth industrial revolution to meet our challenges and to lead the world of technology. Um, I'm, I'm hoping as well that, that each episode will really have conversations that are experience-based and that we draw on my own experience and your expectations going forward and that we engage in conversations with others as well who, who have, who've got expertise and hands-on experience as doers and leaders. So that's what I'm hoping these conversations will lead us to. One thing that I'm always interested in is, uh, especially for like someone like myself who doesn't necessarily come from a tech background, is always just how do people get into tech? Like it can be relatively elitist and it is often just layered with verbosity that it's sometimes intimidating to get into the space. Um, but I know for me personally, just being a philosophy student, um, it was really nice to sit and think about the world, but that was also frustrating because oftentimes what you do is just think. And technology and specifically like AI, which is what I'm 
focusing on was a nice way to actually do something with those thoughts and create these things that are scalable and, and able to engage with the world in, in a meaningful way. And so I kind of want to understand how did you get into tech and what is it that you wanted out of tech? What got you excited about it? So I think my uh, journey into tech was definitely not through philosophy and thinking. My history in computing really maps into the history of computing in a way. And when I say computer, I have to kind of ask you, when you close your eyes and think about a computer, what, what does a computer look like to you? It's like smooth, sleek, quiet. <laughs> that you carry around. Exactly. Yeah. All for the aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> so the computers we looked at were, were the great, great, great grandfathers of the current computers. And they were huge things being built mostly in the USA and very far away from the world that I was growing up in in the 1950s. In fact, at that point, nobody understood the enormous impact that computers would have. Uh, there's an urban legend that says that uh, Thomas Watson, the founder of IBM in 1943, was asked how many computers the world would need. And after deep thought, he said, mm, about five. <laughs> and 75 years later, there's an estimated seven billion computers in the world, if we call anything connected to the internet a computer. And by the end of this year, 2020, we will have reached something like 10 billion computers. And by 2025, something like 50 billion. So we are seeing these things called computers really having such an enormous impact on the world. So I need like a few more than five computers, not a lot. I think you got it a bit. <laughs> I have to say my enduring love affair with computers started in 1972 when I was a second year electrical engineering student at Wits. I was then 20 years old. And I was introduced via a second year course, which was part of Applied Maths, in programming in Fortran. And Wits was the first university in Africa to have an IBM mainframe as a teaching and learning tool. And it was housed on the ground floor of the Northwest Engineering Building on East Campus. And I really fell in love with computers, not because of what they looked like, but what they were capable of doing. For me, computer meant a huge room in the Northwest Engineering Building on this campus. We call that room the machine room. So it's very bright, very clean, very tidy. It um, kind of had an inner sanctum. It contains a number of identical cabinets neatly laid out, but the room is mostly empty space between these carefully arranged cabinets. And what you can't see is that the cabinets stand on a raised floor, a kind of platform, and under the floor, there's a huge spider web of cables linking all these cabinets together. The people in the room were all dressed in white coats, believe it or not, and they were called the operators, and only they were allowed in the room. So ominous. And it's very <laughs> ominous. 
and the machine room was strictly no entry. It had a huge aircon that was there to keep the machine room at constant humidity and a very chilly temperature. And this was not for the comfort or discomfort of the operators, but for the well-being of all the mysterious electronics that was packed into these cabinets. And then in the center of the room was the so-called shift leader or the chief operator who would sit at a console, which was this board with flashing lights and dials and switches. And as you looked into the machine room through a big window on the side, the, the, this group of operators seemed to move silently from cabinet to cabinet, carrying huge disc packs and reels of magnetic tapes. And I can clearly remember when I first peered into this machine room through its large window, I thought of a story in the Bible about the Holy of Holies, where the ark that was built on God's instructions to house the tablets that Moses had brought from Mount Sinai was housed. And the rule God gave was only high priests could enter this inner sanctum. If anyone else dared to, they would be struck dead just for trying. <laughs> and in my 20-year-old mind's eye at the time, the computer sat in a sort of modern-day Holy of Holies, tended by its group of high priests, the operators. And uh, this is why I love being called the Grand Geek now. <laughs> Because it makes me think of the modern-day shift leader as the high priest in this digital world. And I can't imagine that this was the draw into kind of like what you do now. So outside of like this like religious experience that you had, um, like what was the actual like thrill of getting into this, this kind of industry? So you're perfectly right. The, the computer hardware didn't interest me much. Uh, my real fascination and the hook for me was how one could make this hardware do something. In other words, writing programs. I've always been a software guy. So you get to make this thing do something that you wanted to do. Um, and I guess I'm interested to understand sort of like, what is it that you got this computer to do um, in its formative years? Uh, the first program that I wrote as a second year student was in the language Fortran 4 and it was to solve a quadratic equation. So for those of you who remember from school, the equation um, ax squared plus bx plus c equals zero, and if I give you values for a, b, and c, what's the value of x? What are the roots of that equation? Um, the second program that I wrote, that we wrote as a class, was to sort a list of numbers from smallest to biggest and biggest to smallest. and as the year progressed, we did increasingly complex programs. I can remember lying awake at night sometimes thinking of new and clever ways to get the computer to do things. I can remember entering a competition where I had to take the name of a motor car, Cortina, and find ways to look for any words, any anagrams in Cortina. And I cleverly, I thought at the time, wrote a program in Fortran to sort through all the possible permutations of those uh, letters in the word Cortina, which are printed out on reams and reams of paper, and then spent hours in the library going, uh, looking through dictionaries to see which were valid. I was sure that I was going to win a car, but somehow 
I didn't come up with every combination. <laughs> I never know why. And um, it's, it's kind of also interesting for modern day programmers to understand how we wrote programs in, in uh, that time. We would have to feed our program into this computer, this collection of filing cabinets in the machine room uh, using what were called punch cards. Think of a punch card as a cardboard card on which you would encode on the top, you would print along the top a line of your program and under every character in that line would be a column of rows and it could be 72 characters wide and under each of those characters would be holes that had been punched and we used a machine called a, a card punch that would punch the codes into the card we also had special cards that would instruct the computer what to do and we would prepare our punch cards using these punch machines in a big open area next to the machine room which we called the barn and you'd have to queue to get onto a punch card machine and then you'd produce your deck of cards which you held together with a rubber band so if your program had a hundred lines it would, would have a hundred cards plus a few for data and other things and you'd hand it in at a dispatch window which was between the barn and the machine room and um, you would pass it on to the operators who would then um, add it to a queue of jobs and uh, sometimes these were very long queues and, and as the, the pack reached the operator they would read it into a machine called a card reader that would then read through and put your cards into memory where it would then be run on the computer. The results of the printout would then be printed on this continuous printer paper and the uh, next day you could go to the dispatch window and collect your job back which would be your rubber band around your pack of cards with the printout that it had produced and very often there would be an error in your program and when you looked at your printout it would say very unhelpful things like fatal error <laughs> and then you'd have to go and look through your cards and change that card that had a problem in the line. So you learnt to be super careful and I think that's quite a good lesson for people mm. like you who work with programs now is that, uh, you know, I think it's become too easy to write programs. Yeah. When it was so difficult and such a pain in the butt to make a mistake, you learnt to be super careful. Yeah. And I think people now using modern programming languages introduce mistakes without knowing it. And very often those mistakes find their way into working code and that leads to a lot of the security holes we see in modern program. Maybe we can discuss this in another episode. I 100% agree with that. As much as this sounds like the absolute least fun card game, there is something really important about just understanding the fundamentals of what it is that you're building. Um, and I think we can be super grateful for the way in which code has developed and technology has developed and it makes it so much easier. But I know even for me, like a lot of the first principles when I was getting into this stuff was just missing. And I think that's a nice 
a nice almost parallel or contrast is sort of like when you're part of the the journey of creating this thing you get a much richer understanding of it versus say someone like me who's just you know leveraging off what other people did so you're in second year like wind blowing through your hair making really cool programs and then you know through all of this you go into a phd which is a pretty daunting thing to do for anyone and now you're going into something that's relatively new for most of the world but particularly in south africa like not a whole lot of people are doing this so walk me through the phd journey and like what that was like for you so my phd uh was in uh, the field of control engineering there still wasn't such a thing as computer science or software engineering really so i did work in control engineering but what i did was a lot of computer programming and it was uh, dealing with matrices and vectors, which in modern terms, if you look at modern languages, it's all about vectors and matrices. Um, I worked on something involving what were called Walsh transforms, which uh, are um, sort of um, uh, binary versions of Fourier transforms. I won't go into that now. But in terms of my programming, I was using the then new programming language C, I moved from Fortran to C, which was brand new. And we were mostly not working on the mainframe anymore, but working on a workstation or a, a mini computer called the PDP-11, which was running the then new operating system Unix. So it was Unix C on a mini computer. The maths that I did was really hard. I had to learn a lot of very hairy maths but the programming i did was the fun bit and i got really clever at programming stuff around matrices and vectors so for me my big take-home value for my phd was that i learned to program and learned to use these mathematical functions that became useful in almost everything else i've done in my programming life yeah and I guess matrices and vectors, like no matter what stratosphere of the tech industry you're in, like they're just the bread and butter of all of that. Where did you go from there? In uh, December 1979, I finished my PhD. And with uh, that under my belt, I went into voluntary exile in the UK. I did that to avoid going to serve in the apartheid army. And when I went to the UK, I got a postdoc research job in Manchester, at the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology. It was in a group called the Control System Center. And I worked with a really wonderful um, researcher called Dr. Peter Wellstead. And Peter and I decided that it was just too messy to write programs for matrix manipulation. Uh, for those uh, techies listening to this, uh, to deal with matrices and vectors then, it was a lot of loops and loops within loops and getting a lot of errors in your programs because you didn't quite get the right thing multiplying with the right other thing. So what Peter and I decided to do was to build from scratch a preprocessor that helped to implement matrix algebra more easily. So you're working with Dr. Peter, you're doing like really cool stuff with like matrices and manipulating them. Uh, and then now you're building a preprocessor from scratch, which is not a trivial exercise, but, but what exactly do you mean by a preprocessor? 
So a preprocessor takes a program in one language and converts it to a program in another language. So to do this, I invented a new language called Plasma. And Plasma, I spent hours coming up with the name, <laughs> but Plasma stood for Pascal Language Additions to Simplify Matrix Arithmetic. So I invented a language called Plasma that had built-in types called Matrix and Vector. And it converted a Plasma program into a Pascal program. And we had Pascal compilers that could then compile the Pascal program. And the task of writing a preprocessor is the same as writing a compiler. It's a very challenging task in the field of computer science. So I spent about six months of obsessively hard work, but fun work, developing the Plasma preprocessor, which was then tested and ready for use. And my colleagues at UMIS, who were all needing such a, a language in the implementation of control theory, uh, they loved Plasma to such a point that Peter and I and um, another guy who had been working with Peter and was now working in London called uh, Dennis Praga launched a company with the purpose of taking Plasma to market. So it was my first, I didn't call it a startup then, this was in the 1980s where no one spoke of startup, but it was our first attempt at launching a startup. And you know what? Plasma and this company we launched, which we thought would make us millions, because it was so brilliant and everyone loved it, sold about 10 copies of Plasma. So we never made much money. And I think that was also an important lesson for me in terms of how startups work. You can have a great idea. There's always a whole lot more to it to take this thing to market. Um, I just want to say one thing important in terms of where this is providing useful information for people going forward is actually what Plasma was, was a first attempt at object-oriented programming, although nobody called it that at the time. But uh, we encapsulated in modern terminology the idea of matrix and vector into classes or types called um, matrix and vector. So it was a very first attempt, and I can't claim credit to be the only person doing it. At that time, a lot of people were developing preprocessors to do this object-oriented kind of stuff. So you have this, this failed startup, um, and now you're in this big like preprocessing thrill. You're like building really cool things. Now what? So I had spent about a year and a half at UMIST, and then I got a job at postdoc at Imperial College in London and I'd always been keen for other reasons to live in London rather than Manchester. So I got this really cool postdoc in, um, at Imperial College which is part of London University and there I joined a group called the Probe Group. We, we kind of really are keen on, on making funny names but PROPE was the program of research into optimal policy evaluation. And PROPE was led by Professor John Westcott, who was one of the fathers of control theory. It was clear that a big uh, step forward was imminent for automatic control. And so the, there was quite a, uh, an excitement about this. It was a great honor to work with Professor Westcott. 
uh, PROPE was a multidisciplinary research group that was looking to apply optimal control theory in the field of economics. Apart from uh, Prof. Westcott, there were four of us in the group. There was a Greek economist called Ilias, and Burke, who was a control theorist, uh, Robin, who was one of the best software developers I've ever met in my life, and I was the sort of putty that joined all these brilliant individual tiles together and helped to bring all their work into programs. How exactly, when you say you're the putty that's kind of joining these tiles, what does that actually mean? What does that look like? What kind of work are you actually doing? So um, uh, the probe group was looking at ways to apply control methods to, to, um, to develop rational economic policies. So control up to that point was mostly around how you control electromechanical systems. So you would use control to, to automate machines. And what the probe group was looking at is how you can use that to um, automate the formation of policies. So think of this example, the British Minister of Finance is making his budget speech and he stands up in the House of Commons and he says he's planning to reduce unemployment by this percent and grow GDP by that percent and he's going to do this by raising taxes uh, to a certain level and by spending more on export incentives. So that's the nature of, of economic policy. But how does he know that by changing tax rates and incentives will lead to that kind of growth and, and, a, and a reduction in unemployment? And he knows it, or he thinks he knows it, because in preparing his budget, a team of economists and other experts are sitting at Her Majesty's Treasury, uh, simulating hundreds of scenarios using a large macroeconomic model that runs on a mainframe computer. And in this modern fourth industrial revolution world, we'd call these models a digital twin. So the treasury at that time had a digital twin. We didn't call it that. We called it the treasury model. Or as uh, some of my friends, when I told them about it, called it the treasury model because it was this massive thing containing thousands of equations and variables. Very hard to really believe that it was modeling everything correctly. One thing I find so interesting about this is, is so obviously the problem statement that you're working on is, is, is simple because it's clear, but obviously non-trivial. And it's obviously not something that we've made like massive headway in, like this is still something that we struggle with. Um, and I know that a lot of the conversations, especially within the AI communities, how do you use something like reinforcement learning um, or more sophisticated ways um, of, of modeling to kind of essentially solve these problems? Obviously, reinforcement learning, I'm, I'm sure the idea was there, um, but you guys obviously weren't using reinforcement learning or, or these kinds of techniques to solve your problems. So, so what were you, yeah, how did you actually go about tackling this, this monster, this treasury model, as you put it? We um, certainly had no thought of machine learning or anything. It was all brute force methods. And we wrote a lot of software and ran a lot of simulations. But Probe worked both with the Treasury model and another big international macroeconomic model, 
that came from an organization called OECD, uh, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. So we, we uh, had these big models, and in theory it was quite simple. You put the model at the middle, you put these feedback loops around it, as we did in control theory, and you try to say, if you want to achieve this output, you do this with the inputs. So it um, seemed very simple in theory, and it worked very well in um, electromechanical systems. It didn't work well in terms of macroeconomic models and macroeconomic policy. All right, so I get that you're like you're using all these really incredible like modeling techniques, and obviously things are becoming incredibly complex. But somehow, like things aren't working as well as you as you had hoped, um, or it's just not really stacking up to like the macroeconomics that you wanted it to. So, what is it that went wrong exactly? Why why wasn't this working? Two reasons that this thing didn't work. One is that although we were using the best models available at the time, they were still too approximate to really capture the complexity of the real economy. So there was a whole lot of linearization of nonlinear stuff and that made it very hard for these models to really model the truth. Uh, the second thing, and I'm sure you'll understand this coming from your background in philosophy, was that there was a conceptual problem in uh, what we were trying to do and that is within our models was human behavior. If you've got active human agents within your economy, they obviously are going to be watching what government policies are doing and they'll change their behavior to counteract what the government's trying to achieve. And you can't model that, that's very difficult. And uh, you know, maybe in your, your world now of machine learning and AI, maybe that's becoming more possible, but at that time using these algorithmic approaches, it was much more difficult. We did try quite successfully to apply game theory. So we looked at what was then the cutting edge of game theory to see whether we could have multi-agent games where the, the one player was government and the other player was the public or corporates or others and uh, they would play out different kind of scenarios and we would try to find a common optimum across the two or three or four players in the game. That's that's super interesting. I know even today game theory and, and heuristics in general are, are kind of like the bedrock of a lot of the reinforcement learning principles that, that we have. And it's so nice to see that obviously none of these ideas are new, right? They just get repackaged and, and reformulated. Um, but it also sounds like a lot of what you were doing was was incredibly like theoretical and incredibly algorithmic. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, did you feel like you actually got opportunities to really engage with the subject matter and the problem statements in, in a way that you felt like was instantiating macroeconomic or socioeconomic change or, or anything like that? So to me, the best part about working in the pro group was that it was not purely academic. It also had quite a strong flavor of practical usefulness. Uh, we worked very closely with the policy team at the Treasury and with a parliamentary working group that was headed by a quite well-known Labour MP called Jeremy Bray. And the work we did often 
was used in um, economic debate, both in Parliament and outside of Parliament. It was a time also that economic debate was really on everyone's tongue. It was the time of Maggie Thatcher and um, Ronald Reagan, who in the 1980s were pushing forward an agenda called, called monetarism. And monetarism really said that, um, that, that um, economic policy is very simple. You don't need big models. You can work it out on the back of an envelope. You just control something called money supply and you set the markets free and government takes a very light hand and everything will be optimized. And that was, and we were showing quite the opposite. We were throwing up the complexity and game theory. So the kind of things we were concluding in our work and papers we published was very anti-monetarist and that became quite important in the debates at the time. Um, I think what's also interesting is that, you know, just given like the time in which you're doing all these things, you're oscillating between so many different intensive political systems. Like you've just moved kind of out of South Africa and now you're in this other like hectic uh, political system. Um, but at the same time, getting to do some really interesting work and getting to, to combat a lot of these truly reductionist arguments. And that's that's wonderful. But I'm also interested to see what is some of the more like mundane stuff that you have to engage with that didn't necessarily change the world, but it's obviously really important for the work that's that's going to be done later on. So a big part of my technical work at the time as part of the probe group was to convert the very poorly documented and the dauntingly massive treasury model from Fortran 4, which is what it was written in, to a modern version of Fortran called Fortran 7. And the reason that we wanted to, to do this translation was to move it off the mainframe and run it on a more user-friendly workstation. So running these models on a mainframe with all our control theory and game theory was a real pain in the neck that we were thinking of the way mainframes worked. So we were trying to put it on something more user-friendly and more accessible. So I think modern terminology would be software maintenance. And I was very proud that my conversion of the treasury model which was then given back to the UK Treasury to use, um, continued for many years to still be used in the Treasury. So long after I left the probe group and even left the UK, I would listen to the UK budget speech with a sense of pride and warm satisfaction in my heart, knowing that all the assumptions that were being put forward in that speech had been worked out on a program that I had actually written. It was uh, quite nice to know that. And as far as I know, it might still be in use today and might be in use by civil servants who are developing scenario for Brexit. Who knows? Maybe I'm behind some of the planning around Brexit. <laughs> I hope not. All right, so you do some, I would say, pretty prolific work. Um, you know, you're helping to co-orchestrate Brexit <laughs> uh, and you're, you know, you're creating um, insightful debates, but I mean, kind of knowing where you ended up, you obviously didn't stay doing that kind of work forever. So what did you go on to do? In 1985, I decided to 
leave academia and join a corporate research lab. And I went to work for the GEC Marconi Research Centre, which was just outside of London in a place called Chelmsford in Essex. And I joined the Industrial Automation Division. The lab I worked in was working in robotics, particularly flexible assembly of small batches of products. So we were beginning to see mass production of large batches of things. If you're making uh, zillions of components, you would have robots making them. The challenge was how you made small batches in a flexible way. And what the group I joined was doing was bringing together a robot and some 1980s artificial intelligence. Uh, The robot we used was a very cleverly designed assembly robot, which was called the Tetrabot, and that had been invented in the lab I was working in. Um, At the time, uh, the um, European Union was funding collaborative research under a program called Esprit, and our lab had secured funding as part of this Esprit project. And we worked in collaboration with research teams from Spain, France, the Netherlands, and West Germany. West Germany was then separated from East Germany. And uh, while we were working on this project, I discovered something formally that I had been playing with in earlier times, and that was object orientation. So it was the time that people were starting to publish papers on OO, object-oriented design and object-oriented programming, uh, programming languages were starting to come out. And I became the Esprit Project's expert in OO. This is just a little bit surreal for me, being in in the coding industry right now, the tech industry right now, where object-oriented programming is just so commonplace and so many people are, are equipped to do it. And obviously this is years ago and you're now the relative expert. What does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be the OO expert? Interesting that you say it's it's commonplace now, but at that time it was so revolutionary because the way people do programs, how you deal with programming is something called a decomposition. You break your problem up into smaller bits. And until then, and through my whole learning of programming, the uh, breaking up into small bits have been breaking up into functions. It's called functional decomposition. So you, you, you take a big task and break it up into smaller tasks. What O said is you break things up into different objects, which are both had functionality and data. And that was revolutionary. People were saying, this is crazy. This will never catch on. I don't want to do this. This doesn't work. So it was very much at the, at the leading edge to be an, uh, uh, an OO person because nobody thought it would come too much. I mean, this is so wild. It's like you're at that interesting intersection of, is this crazy or is this brilliant? Or is it some mix of two? <laughs> um, what grew out of that? Like, so obviously now you're doing the, you know, you're leading the frontier in, in, in OO in this place that you're working at. And kind of what, yeah, what came out of it? What were some of the learnings? So uh, one of the things that uh, came out was we were working on this flexible assembly. And what was happening is that using a functional decomposition in our flexible assembly system, 
we were finding that we had to move humongous amounts of data around our system. And it made it just so inefficient and so problematic to do. And then I had a brainwave and I can even remember waking up one morning and it was literally a light went on in my head and I ran off to work and I developed an OO design for what we were doing. And it was, um, it, it was a very radically different way to deal with how we were going to move data around. And um, an interesting footnote to this is that in 2018, I was reading a paper from Germany on the Fourth Industrial Revolution, or Industry 4.0, and in that paper they say that uh, what has really given rise to Industry 4.0 is the idea of smart products. And when I read the description of smart product, I nearly fell off my chair, because that was my brainwave that I had in the 1980s. What uh, they claimed in their article was that these smart products know their production history, their current and target states, and actively steer themselves through the production process by instructing the machines to perform certain tasks, which is exactly what I had come up with. So, I mean, um, I kind of thought at the time that I should have published this stuff and we weren't allowed to publish because we were working in a corporate research lab. And I've got very little that I sort of wrote at the time, but with a bit of a tongue in cheek, I could say that I invented the fourth industrial revolution in some way. What a pity I didn't take <laughs> the idea. All the shout outs to you. Thanks for that. Um, one thing I always find so interesting, and it's almost like a, a very retrospective thing, is that these ideas are, they seem so obvious. Like, of course, you don't want everything to just be brute force and you want things to think for themselves, I guess. Um, but again, it's like a really aha moment. Like, yeah, of course, why haven't we always been doing this? And that's that's pretty remarkable. I guess I want to also understand a little bit more about sort of the, the work you were doing at the lab and kind of like the, the engagements you were having on a more theoretical and academic level, level there. So, yeah, take, take me through that. So... The key focus of the lab was then what we then called expert systems, which are now seen as a subset of AI. And we used um, technology um, that was uh, then very, very expensive, very much at the cutting edge. We um, had a workstation, an AI or an expert system workstation called the Symbolics 3600 which came from MIT and it used the language LISP in terms of bringing the object-oriented thinking in. I taught myself what was then the first genuine OO language called Smalltalk. And what my colleagues and I were doing was really at the very forefront of, of uh, research in AI and expert systems. And that was in the late 1980s. So you're doing like incredibly innovative stuff, coming up with the fourth industrial revolution, all at the tender age of what, 20, 30? 20, late 20s, early 30s. This makes me feel really good yeah. about all the stuff that I'm doing. Thank you. <laughs> um, but obviously you had like, you know, I'm sure you yourself had like passion projects or, 
or interests outside of this and I'm sure people within the industry also had similar things so do you, do you have a rough idea of like what other people were working on or interested in um, and can you maybe just kind of talk me through that the other cutting edge that I touched at this time was the first Apple Mac personal computer so we got one of these uh, computers for our lab it was a very beautiful looking computer the first well-designed piece of technology in terms of aesthetic but it was something really nice to look at and we used it to do the most beautiful reports it was uh, you could uh, lay things out on the screen and fancy fonts and all of that so things people take for granted were introduced in this first Apple Mac that came out at that time at this time as well a lot of us were acquiring home computers and I got my first computer at home which was an IBM PC clone running a very early version of Microsoft DOS and the WordPerfect word processing package but the truth is that although this was really a growing interest it was still by people like me and the people I worked with this was still seen as not real computing what we were doing at work with the Symbolic 3600 and all the fancy um, technology we had, uh, the, the home computer revolution was seen as something sort of uh, recreational mm -hmm. rather than serious. Mm. But um, at home, I did do a lot of uh, personal uh, programming on, um, on my home computer. But um, it was a time as well that there was a lot of quite scary stuff happening back in South Africa. So living in uh, the UK, but still very aware of what was going on back home in South Africa. In the late 80s were really um, the darkest days of apartheid in many ways. And I had some projects that I was doing that I'll talk about in a future podcast, but it was um, work to do with the way I was trying to support the struggle against apartheid. So I think what you're saying is incredibly important and, and we can unpack it in, in one of the future episodes where, where you look at or we talk about sort of apartheid and, and the systemic structures surrounding it. Um, but one thing I've noticed, especially like now within the polit political climate and especially just having graduated from university is that activism looks so different to, to different people. And for some people, like you feel like you're making more of a, a contribution when you're on the front lines versus for other people, it feels like maybe I'm doing more when I'm coming up with like policy or writing or something like that. And so I'm really interested to, to explore that with you and how you sort of found your activism through software engineering and computer science. So definitely excited to, to hear about that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Optimizing. It was produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky, featuring me, Karen Gammy. It was edited by Evan Wigdorovitz, music and sound design by Callum Cool, and the mixing was done by Joshua Clark. Pelonomi Mwilwa designed our logo.